0: The size of the backpack has been illuminated. with the seen light all of the <laughs> And welcome to Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org. And I am your host, NC Scout, coming at you live, deep in the heart of rural northern North Carolina. This episode is going to be, uh, well, I'll, I'll just get it right off my chest uh, up front. This this is um, one of the most exciting interviews, one of the most exciting guests I have ever uh been graced with on this podcast i've had some great interviews in the past this one is going to be amazing i was so excited when dr arthur t bradley the emp doc himself agreed to come on this show spend an hour or so with us an evening talking about electromagnetic pulse things that you can do to protect yourself, realistic threat awareness, and just share knowledge. I am literally so excited right now to have you on the air with us, Dr. Bradley. Thank you for coming on.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So right off the bat, I know you, you've got a huge number of followers on YouTube and rightfully so. I think that you are the foremost expert on electromagnetic pulse in the United States today, if not the world. And your approach to it rather than uh, hyperbole is to to break it down with scientific fact and actually perform experiments and 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 just you know, sift through the nonsense. So the first question that I'm sure is on everybody's mind, because EMP is one of those topics that, you know, it, it sells a lot of fear to a lot of people. The first thing that I want to ask is how realistic is the EMP threat? What is EMP? And break it down for us in in terms that really any man can understand.
1: Yeah, no, it's a fair question. Um, anytime I talk about preparedness topics, you know, I always start with, you, you start with the basic question of, is this something I need to worry about, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that people talk about that the chances of it are so small that you really don't, you know, spending your waking hours worrying about it is not the best use of your time. So an EMP is, is a high impact, low frequency event, which means that if it happens, it's a big, big deal but it's not likely to happen. It's a low frequency kind of thing. Um, is it possible? Yeah, absolutely it's possible. The, the Russians, the US, we both tested EMP weapons. We, we demonstrated what an EMP can do. Um, this dates back to the 60s. Um, you look at some of the various experiments, Starfish Prime and other things. Russia's tried it over one of their small cities before. Um, they understand just as we do that if you detonate a, a nuclear warhead It doesn't even have to be a particularly large one, but if you detonate one very high in the atmosphere, you won't cause any ground damage. There won't be any collateral, you know, dead people and exploded buildings or anything like that. But what you do is you generate a very powerful electromagnetic disturbance that essentially perturbates the magnetic field lines of the Earth. And you end up with these uh, multiple effects felt at the surface of the Earth. And those effects um, are studied in great detail. There's a lot of math behind them. it has been a lot, and a lot of testing done. Um, but the result of it is there's sort of two significant things that happen. The first one is that you get an immediate, very, very sharp pulse in time, a very powerful electromagnetic disturbance that might only last a handful of nanoseconds, maybe 20 nanoseconds at the most. So it's really, really, really short in time. But it's very large in amplitude. You might have electric fields of 50,000 volts per meter or or even larger. And at those those electric field levels, um, you can couple that energy into electronic wiring, usually the circuit traces or the wires going into systems, and that will potentially destroy or cause damage to the electronics. And so, that initial pulse, that what they call the E1 pulse is so quick, but it's a massive amount of potentially damaging energy uh, squeezed into a narrow period of time. And so you can damage all kinds of electronics, all anywhere within line of sight of that detonation. And that could be basically from coast to coast of the United States if done properly. So that's the initial thing that happens. And then sometime later, microseconds later, not, not long enough that you could do anything about it, um, there's a much slower pulse that of energy that couples into very, very long conductors. Think miles-long conductors, not feet, not meters, but things that are miles and miles long. They start getting this coupled energy into them, and that would be like our power grid, for example. You would couple a lot of uh, energy over perhaps seconds or even minutes, and that would cause um, a tremendous amount of damage to anything connected to those very long conductor. So you'd have transformers blow out, you'd have energy coupling the homes and businesses that would blow out all kinds of stuff. So the net effect of the EMP would be no visual damage. You know, nobody's gonna be on fire running around. Um, you won't have incinerated anyone, but instead you'll have caused perhaps trillions of dollars worth of infrastructure damage, uh, you know, in the bat of an eye. And it's a very unique weapon. Um, like I said, the U.S. knows about EMPs. They know how to generate one, as do our enemies. Um, you have to basically have a missile that can go up very high, and you have to have a nuclear payload that's small enough to fit in that missile. And then you have to be able to detonate it over your target very high in the atmosphere. And and most of our enemies, China, Russia, um, fortunately not Iran yet, and we don't know about North Korea, but certainly China and Russia have the ability to do that to the United States. So it's a it's an interesting threat. It's – um very asymmetric because it's not entirely sure that most people would know how to retaliate against something like that. So that's kind of the gist of it.
0: It's certainly concerning and and it it's a perennial topic in preparedness circles is being concerned with EMP and man what an what an excellent breakdown. Um now of course the follow-on question with with that would be um, how realistic do you think the EMP threat is right now, given contemporary events, given what we see going on in Ukraine, the saber rattling going on back and forth, and it's a very hot war, of course, in Eastern Europe right now. Uh, China certainly, uh, logically has designs on Taiwan and there, there's a lot of saber rattling going on there as well. Along with uh, renewed missile tests coming out of North Korea uh, just seven days ago. they was was their most recent uh, successful rocket test into the Sea of Japan. How realistic do you think this threat is to the United States for uh, literally all of us?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's more likely today than it has been probably uh, in my lifetime. Because, like I said, it's a very asymmetric threat. It's it's not a threat that most people would know exactly what to do about, and that includes the United States leadership. If a nuclear weapon were to detonate, and let's say over the eastern seaboard, and we had massive infrastructure damage, but no physical destruction. Um, and maybe we didn't even know where, maybe it was launched from somewhere where it could have been from a terrorist entity, or it could, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways to camouflage an attack. And... And it certainly would pose uh, you know, a grave national danger to the United States, um, but it's not entirely clear what we would do about it. I don't know that we would initiate an EMP attack on who we thought did it or if we would initiate a ground invasion or a, or a conventional war or nuclear attack. It's really difficult to know what would happen. And I'm sure our enemies feel the same way, which is that I'm sure Russia – I mean, Russia has actually – Outwardly threatened to do an EMP attack on the United States before they they've um, boasted that they had the ability to do that. So they're very aware of you know sort of the feeling that that has around it. I, you know I still don't think it's likely. I think there are many steps that you'd see many hostilities would be ramped up before something like that happened. You know I think we would we would engage in some kind of direct conflict with Russia before they would they would resort to something like that. But We're closer now than we have been in a very, very long time. Right. Um, You see a lot of intelligent people talking about, you know, things go the wrong way in the next few weeks. We could end up in some kind of world war with Russia, maybe even with China. And uh, because China, as you said, they have their eyes on Taiwan and they may view this time of chaos as an opportunity that they can't pass up. Um, So there's lots of lots of potential moving pieces here. And some of them could certainly align where a nuclear nation decided, well, we don't want to do a nuclear strike because then we know what's going to happen. There's going to be nuclear retaliation. It won't be a choice. But maybe there's something else. Maybe this EMP-type weapon, we could do something and cause enough chaos that wouldn't draw a nuclear strike upon us, and we might come out to the good. I mean, that kind of calculus is being done, I'm sure, by our enemies all the time. So it is something that – you know. I've been in this EMP community for, I don't know, maybe 15 years or so, and it certainly seems to be more likely today uh, than it has been any time that I've been involved in it, just because of the dynamics all around the world right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would agree uh, wholeheartedly, simply from the fact of examining the second and third order effects there. If our our adversaries don't want to destroy our infrastructure per se, uh, the infrastructure that they actually have interest in, China has expressed a lot of interest in the material wealth here in the United States through their uh, their natural resource purchases and whatnot. And it, it seems like to me from a strategic point of view that an EMP would be a very good way to accomplish those aims if they set off an EMP. Now you don't have to necessarily worry about retaliation or at least an effective retaliation, which kind of gives way to my next question. In your estimation, how prepared is the U.S. government against such an attack? Because we've seen uh, Ted Koppel's book, uh, Blackout, which made its rounds a number of years ago and and had a a big impact. Of course, uh, most folks are familiar with uh, Dr. William Forsten's Uh, work, as well with uh, uh, One Second After, which, you know, didn't paint a very good picture socially. Uh, Either one of those books did not picture uh, or paint a very good picture socially of the ramifications of such an attack. So, you know, how how prepared do you think that we are as a nation against this threat right now?
1: Well, I don't think we're very prepared for it. Um, my suspicion is that the U.S. military is probably versed on it, and many of our systems, I know military systems have been tested and probably hardened against it. Um, it used to be a system called the trestle. You've probably heard of it, a big wooden structure where they used to test military aircraft and military systems against an EMP, uh, which was a pretty neat idea. They do all that by simulation now, but it's a, it was a neat facility. I think they did that back in the 70s. So I, my guess is the U.S. military is probably pretty ready for it, but the the civilian population, most people don't even know what an EMP is, um, and the fact that the kind of chaos and disruption it could cause, they would have no idea about. But the biggest disruption would be to the electrical power grid. If if an EMP or or a series of EMPs could take out, all, you know, essentially the the grid across the United States, you know, the chaos and the the loss of lives and just the the hardship that would be uh, felt by the citizens here would be unlike anything that, that we could imagine, really. Um, there are lots of people who have you know, very grave predictions of you know 95% plus people would die within a year. Um, I tend to think that's probably a little pessimistic just because people, people are clever. You know, People find ways to survive even in very hard conditions. But I can tell you, if we lost the grid uh, and all the interconnects, the uh, five major interconnects, their life would not be the same for quite a period of time, perhaps even a year or more. And a lot of people would suffer um, because we become so dependent. Uh, you know, we just live in a, a technological society where everything's on demand, and we're used to turning on the tap and having water, and we're used to going to the grocery store and always having 15 choices for breakfast and dinner. And and other countries maybe don't have those luxuries and might fare a little better, but I think we would um, we would suffer tremendously if there were an EMP strike that took down the electrical grid. Just because everything else would collapse, all of our infrastructures would quick, quickly go down from emergency services to banking to food distribution on down the list. Everything would struggle, um, and people would find every wall, every part of their life would be difficult. Um, so I think I think it would be a huge impact. Uh, I don't know how to overstate it or understate it. Um, you know, I've never gone through and lived through something like that. I just, I just think that, um, people should take it very seriously and not think that it would be over within a week or something like that. This would be a long-term, uh, significant hardship on people.
0: You know, we, we saw the beginning of that early on with the COVID crisis, uh, toilet paper. I mean, toilet paper became a meme, uh, the, the shortage, you know, we, we can chuckle about it now, but that was a big thing. I, and, you know, I remember, uh, going down to to Costco and seeing signs up saying you know you can only buy one and you know the shelves are empty, and it was something as trivial as toilet paper, a, a product that is very much a, a Western. Machination that you know they don't have in other parts of the world. They don't, you know, they, they don't, they don't really live like this. And to me, uh, as as somebody that's experienced life outside of the United States and and in very austere conditions, um, I i am gravely concerned when I see people get so worked up over something that is a relatively new invention uh, in the big scheme of things, and something as trivial as toilet paper or basic skills like how to boil water and not drink it out of a plastic bottle, uh, thing, things like that. It, and, uh, but I agree with you a hundred percent on, on the Malthusian trap and, and the, um, the pessimistic view that a lot of people have the the death toll, at least in my estimation as well would be, uh, huge. I mean, it, it would be very major. There would be a lot of elderly folks out there and, and aging or, or graying population that would suffer. People that uh, require uh, medical devices, CPAP machines and, and what have you to live, they, they obviously would um, have, have it pretty rough. But as far as the younger generations, they would eventually figure it out. I mean, this is something that's been universal throughout human history. We, you know, societies have risen and fallen, but uh, humanity in and of itself has figured it out. You know, life finds a way. Um, But of course, you know, that begs the next question. So, you know, the United States is not very well prepared as far as the civilian side. The military side, I I guess we'll see. I'm not so optimistic about that personally, but that's also not my area of expertise. Um, But that being said, with, with all that you do and the things that you've tested, what are, I should say, what is the first product that, a preparedness minded individual or somebody that's trying to get ready to mitigate this threat is working to mitigate this threat. What is the first product that they should seek to protect and how should they go about doing that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, an EMP is one of those, like I said, it's a high impact, low frequency event. So just by that definition, it means it has lots of effects on you. It's going to impact people in many different ways, and so what I always tell people when they prepare, you know, is you start with your basics, you know, food, water, shelter. You figure out how you're going to weather, you know, 95 percent of the things that the world's going to throw at you and do so with plenty of margin to spare. And most preppers or people that are into this community, they've done that already. They, you know, they've got cabinets full of food and they, they know how to purify water and they've got backup systems and so forth. So if we assume that that we're going beyond those basic preparations, which everyone should start with, those, before you worry about EMP protection, you should worry about just sort of being ready and being prepared. Because lots of other things are more likely to kill you. Um, but beyond that, you know, the, the thing to me is usually in books, you know, everybody's bugging out. Everybody's packing their stuff and trying to get from point A to point B because it makes for great storytelling. But in reality, most people are better off staying put because they have a a great shelter around them filled with supplies of all sorts that they know about. And what you'd like is you'd like your home to be as functional as possible if something like an EMP occurred. And the way you can do that, of course, is to have some kind of backup electrical system because the grid would most likely go down or at least be down much of the time. And so having a backup electrical system would be very handy, whether that's solar or a generator, as long as you had enough fuel, um, those would be very handy. Um, the other thing you'd want to do, when I started off, I talked about that that late pulse that comes in that causes the, the energy on the power lines to come into all kinds of systems and cause damage. You'd like to prevent that if you can. And because once it damages everything in your home, you're kind of screwed, even if you got a backup electrical system. So... If you there's a couple of things to think about. The first one is you'd like to know early that an EMP has just occurred, right? And you won't have any way of knowing. You won't see it. You won't hear it. Um, but you'd like to know early before that late pulse arrives at such a level that it starts causing damage to things in the home or in the business. And there is a product. It's not quite out. It's open available for pre-order uh, and I'm not here pitching products, but I'm just to answering your question. There's a product that I developed just recently called the EMP Alert, which is just a little plug in module that when this this power line level starts to rise, um, it sounds an alarm and says, hey, the the power line levels are way out of spec. You need to do something now and you can go and open the breaker on your house, which will at least prevent that late energy from coming in. there's really no other way you'll know until things start maybe you know smelling when they start burning up or something that something has happened and that emp alert is a pretty unique idea it's first of its kind as far as i know it it does several things it it lets you know when there's a brief electromagnetic pulse like that that early time e1 pulse it'll sound an immediate alarm and then it'll sound a long duration alarm that'll just stay on as the power levels start rising and so it's not something you can ignore. It tells you something just happened and now the power levels are rising and you should take some action. So that's a pretty neat product. Um, you can order them. You can get them at DisasterPrepair.com. Uh, I think they'll come out in a couple of months or so. They're being tested right now. But so that's one item. The other item um, that I would recommend is that you try and protect your home from that initial transient pulse that comes in. Now you can't really protect the home from the late pulse. It just, there's too much energy to sink away. So you have to open the breaker to protect yourself. But that initial pulse you'd like to not have come in and just zap it, you know, some things in your house like your computers and so forth. And you can do that by getting a good quality surge protection device. Um, usually people buy what's called a type two surge protection device uh, that you put at your main breaker panel. And it, most people buy them for lightning protection. They're meant to protect from nearby lightning strikes. But they do a very good job of also helping to protect from very rapid power line surges that you might see from an EMP. And one that I really like, uh, it's what's on my house, is a Siemens FS140. FS stands for first surge. Um, It's a really good product. I don't know, it's a few hundred bucks. Uh, It's a very good product that wires into the main breaker panel. I don't sell it, never did. It's just one that I think is a really good product. They're hard to find right now because I've been recommending them. I think they sold most of them out across the U.S. But if you hunt, maybe you'll find one. Um, Eaton, E-A-T-O-N, is another company that offers some pretty good ones, so you can look for those also. But but that's a very good protection to do, is to put on a, a type 2 surge protection device. And the other thing you can add with those is you can put some high saturation ferrites on your main power wires that come into your house. and And all they do is they try and suppress very fast current surges that might come down those power wires. Now, Those are custom designed. Again, you can find those at disasterprepare.com. Maybe there's some other places. I've never seen any. Uh, It was something I invented several years back. Uh, But those are main preparations that I tell people, you know, try and protect your house by putting those things on your your, uh, at your breaker panel. And then other people, you know, they try and store their very sensitive electronics away in maybe Faraday bags or, or Faraday cages. And we can talk about what all those are. Um, but I always say start with the house first because you'd like to keep as much of your house appliance as functional as you can.
0: Right on, right on. That That's uh, the Faraday cage, which is uh, something that I learned a tremendous amount from your channel specifically because there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting different ideas on Faraday cages that are floating around on the internet where everybody's an expert on everything, but you literally have a doctorate in this. You you know what you're talking about. And one of the, the simpler ones that I've seen you construct in the past, and it's one that I advocate to people in class because the question always comes up, is to get a simple metal trash can and, of course, line it so that you have insulating layers Um, And and that galvanized metal trash can, putting Pelican cases in it or, uh, you know, whatever the equivalent is on the inside of it as an insulating layer to protect uh, your electronic devices. Talk us through what's going on with that Faraday cage, that design, and just really an economical way that people can protect their own electronics and really what they need to be putting inside of it.
1: Yeah, so yeah, so a Faraday cage is. um, You're right. There's a lot of stuff on the internet, and some of it's good, and some of it's not so good. Um, I've taught some classes before where we built Faraday cages out of like big Rubbermaid tubs and aluminum foil, and then we tested it. You know, we tested everybody's Faraday cage with some test equipment, and you know, sure enough, two things that looked very similar performed drastically different because of some minor differences that you have to understand. So. The galvanized garbage can is actually a really good one. Um, the metal is plenty thick enough. You really don't need anything more than about two layers of aluminum foil um, due to the high frequency effects. But, it, but it's nice and thick. It's convenient. It's low cost. You can go spend 30 bucks or something and get one at Lowe's or Home Depot. The only thing about it is that you don't know from can to can how well the lid seals all the way around. Some of them I've tested you could just put the lid on and off, and every time you put the lid on, you got 70 or 80 dB of shielding. And to put that in perspective, 80 dB of shielding is 99.99% of the electric field has been reduced inside the can. And so so that's fantastic. It's way better than you need. Um, but other cans that look just like that one maybe gave you 40 dB or, or something like that, not as much. Now, 40 dB is still quite good, 99% but it's still maybe not quite enough. And so what I tell people is, yes, you can line the inside of the can with cardboard or something like that, and then either tape the lid with conductive tape. You can just, while you're at Home Depot, you can buy a roll of that aluminum duct tape, and you tape around the seam of the lid once you put the lid on. That works beautifully. Then the can will give you 80, 90 dB of shielding, which is plenty. Um, The only hassle with the tape is that it will cut the crap out of your fingers? I know that because I have worked with it on too many tests, and I have bloody fingers yes. all every time. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's no fun. And uh, and you could use copper tape if you want, but it ends up it all works about the same. So don't spend more than you need to. And so you can get away with you know having a big Faraday cage for like under fifty bucks, which is great. Um, the other thing you can do for the can, if you if you have to get in and out of it a lot, like the ones that I've done. I like to be able to get put things in and out regularly and not have to mess with the tape. So I found a very uh, special sized uh, gasket, a conductive gasket, that you can just put on the inside sidewall of the lid, and it just kind of gives you a squishy metal gasket that when you put the lid on, it makes a nice seal all the way around the can. And uh, we have those on the website too. Uh, and and I had to try maybe 30 or 40 different sizes before I found one that was just the right, just did what I wanted. And it works as well as the tape um you know you have to pay for it one time but at least you don't cut your fingers up and stuff and so that's another option for sealing them and it is really the thing i tell people is it's never the metal it's never the thickness of the metal it's never the holes that get your faraday cage compromised it's a fun experiment to take a really good faraday cage and measure the shielding maybe it's 80 db and then you take a drill and you have with an eight inch drill bit and you start drilling holes in the Faraday cage. And you would think, oh man, it's going to destroy the shielding. But it doesn't. You can drill 20 holes in that thing and the shielding maybe has gone down two or three dB. So it's not the holes that get you, it's always the long, narrow seams. So if you did the same can and you take an X Acto knife and you carve a six inch slice in it, the shielding might go down by 30 or 40 dB. It makes a huge difference. So, it's that seam around the outside of the lid that, you know, if you looked up underneath the lid, that little tiny seam, if there's any portion of it that's, you know, inches long with even a tiny little gap, the RF energy will come in. It'll treat it like a slot antenna, and it'll come in the can very efficiently. So, that's why you need to either tape it or use the gasket to seal it up. And um, and Faraday Cages, you know, galvanized garbage can is $1. But you can also just take a wooden box and wrap it with aluminum foil a couple of times. That works wonderful. Um, People get clever and try all different kinds of things for Faraday cages. And as long as it's, you know, sealed up well and there's no narrow seam gaps anywhere, it probably will do a very good job. Now, it's difficult. I always get asked, well, how do I know if my Faraday cage is working or not? Um, You can't really use like radios, you know, like uh, AM, FM radios. Because you don't know the signal strength and how g- good your radio is at receiving it. So it's difficult to get a number like, well, is this 20 dB or 40 dB? So I came up with a way, so I guess it was a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, using two-way radios and a, um, a variable button box attenuator. And there's a little kit. It's called a, a Faraday Cage test kit, I think. It's on the website, oh, too. Yeah. And And it's pretty, you know, you got to be patient when you do it but it's pretty clever that you can dial in to within a few dB to know what your shielding is. And, and what I always tell people is if you're in a group of preppers, just buy one of them and share it with the group and let everybody test out all their Faraday cages. And a lot of people have written me in the past year or so and said, hey, my Faraday cage, you know, I thought was fantastic. I tested, I only got 20 dB. What's going on? And and we'll work through what's happening, and by the time they're done, maybe they're at 60 dB or something, and they're very, they're much happier and feeling about it. So it is tough to test Faraday cages without specialized equipment. Um, you can't use cell phones. If you just use two-way radios, like you just tape your two-way radio on and you put it in there, it'll talk right through your Faraday cage, because two-way radios take about 100 or 120 dB to block. So they're difficult to use to test unless you have a variable attenuator with them and So anyway, that's kind of the long answer on uh, the galvanized garbage can and and maybe how you check them out.
0: I don't know. That's huge. That's huge, because I've seen a lot of people uh, advocate just testing it using a cell phone. And what they'll do is is, uh, you know, open up YouTube or something and uh, listen to it until it stops buffering inside of the cage and Mm -hmm. test that for its effectiveness. I've seen people do that with, um, with the, like the, the mission darkness bags and, and whatnot. That is very interesting to know that that is not a surefire way to test a, a, a Faraday cage. I, I, because I I literally never heard that before, but that's amazing. Um,
1: wow. Yeah. The reason, the reason is, I mean, people try it and it's fine to, to do that, but you don't know the signal strength or the sensitivity You know that your phone is going to receive it at so you don't really have a way to know did i need 40 db to block the phone or did i need 80 you know you just there's no way to really know
0: right right yeah that that's definitely uh and and, you know we we need specific measurement you know as you well know and, and that's something that i try to underscore too is is that good enough may not always be good enough you know, and, and usually in the worst of circumstances, good enough is, is not good enough, um, which has unfortunately been my experience more often than not. So on the inside of our Faraday cage, so our, our hypothetical galvanized trash can, what are we doing on the inside of it to further insulate our items? Because I know, you know, you, you have to have that insulating layer between the metal and the devices themselves. What do you recommend using? Well,
1: the truth is, uh, in my Faraday cage, many of the items would be fine without any lining at all because most of our electronics are housed in plastic housings already. Um, But it's a good, safe thing to line the can with something in case you have exposed power cords, you know, with metal on them or exposed antennas. I mean, we do have things like that, and you don't want to have some of that. I mean, a Faraday cage is basically a big charge redistribution thing where when a field hits it, the free carriers, the electrons in the metal – realign really, really fast on the shell of the metal, and they cancel the field inside. So you have an external field, and then you have a canceling field internally that that sort of cancels it out. And so whatever's inside the container doesn't, they they have zero net field, and it doesn't cause any damage. Um, But if you end up, you know, accidentally getting metal to metal on your devices, you can end up being part of that charge redistribution. You don't really want that. And so yeah, you'd want to line it. And most people use cardboard. It's cheap and easy, and I think it's perfectly fine. I've seen other things where they've sprayed rubber and done various things to get a little more clever. Um, but I say keep it cheap and keep it simple. Just get you know a, a cardboard box and line it would be fine. Um, again, what you're trying to do really is just prevent anything metal of your electronics uh, from laying against the inside wall. Um, the other thing people do if they really want to be conservative is they'll store their items in Faraday bags, which are often low-cost. You can buy some uh, low-cost, anti-static, what people call Faraday bags or EMP bags. And they put them in those first, and then they put those down inside the, the, the Faraday cage. Now, the interesting thing about Faraday bags is even though they look metal and they have sputtered metal layers in them, they're not metallic on the outside. They don't conduct electricity on the outside. There's plastic polyethylene on the outside. So they don't actually short out laying against the inside sidewall anyway. So that's just something to know. But but so sometimes people will do a double layer. Well, they'll, they'll make a can up real nice and they'll go, well, maybe I don't know that the can's good enough. So they'll store everything in these Faraday bags and they'll just drop them down in the can and put the lid on. And it ends up that that works remarkably well. Um, if you can layer protections uh, against electromagnetic fields... You kind of get the combination of all of them together, which is really pretty neat. So if you have a Faraday bag that gives you, let's say, 50 dB of shielding, and then you have a trash can that gives you 50 dB of shielding, you put them together, you're going to get close to 100 dB of shielding. Maybe you get 90-something. And that's really remarkable. Um, so you really want like fantastic electromagnetic EMP-type protection, you put a couple layers of things like EMP bags and in in a garbage can, and that really will give it to you
0: right on that's what man what that that's incredible information right there um building building a, a faraday cage on the cheap you know and and originally with a whole trash can i got the idea from your channel from one of your videos and uh just just being able to talk about that that is that's outstanding um Next on the list over here of my uh, questions, which I, I could literally spend all night, just, I mean, th- this is amazing. Um, you know, going down the list, so we talked about the household being really the most important and for... Uh, you know, when I, I think about, you know, power outages and severe uh, weather and, and natural disasters and whatnot, you know, we're getting into, to tornado season here in, in this part of North Carolina, um, you know, it, in power outage, we had a power outage just a, a few hours ago and, um, you know, for the, the preservation of food storage that we have in our freezers and, and whatnot, um, and with that said, so we, prefer, we we're able to preserve the the actual electronic components inside of our house, the uh, refrigerators and um, you know electronic items that are inside of our house that are kind of our sustainment and quality of life items. We have to keep them powered though, because if there's a EMP that goes off and all of a sudden you know the the uh, power stations are offline and transformers have blown up and whatnot. Um, A lot of us, myself included, have a number of backup generators. And, you know, a power outage is really not that big of a deal. I've got several um, very well-made power inverters. Um, I've got a a large standalone generator as well. But they're not impervious to EMP. How would we protect those? Yeah, so generators are...
1: are Different based on what technologies are used in them. So if you have like like I have um, one of those wheel out portable generators like a big Briggs and Stratton pull start kind of thing. There's really nothing in that that's going to be damaged by an EMP and EMP's danger is that very brief pulse of energy, which really damages solid state semiconductor electronics and that long duration surge. And since my generators not normally connected up to the grid or anything, I'm not going to have a path for that energy to come in. So those kind of generators, just you know, the the portable ones that are very simple, um, those are not likely to be damaged, period, by an EMP anyway. But there's a lot of other kind of generators, like the Hondas and the things that are these portable uh, generators and inverters that do have charge control circuitry in them and and digital displays and battery monitoring things, and and those are sensitive and can be damaged. And so It depends on the size of the particular unit, but there's a few things that you can do. You can certainly, if they're small, you could put them in a Faraday cage, like a big conductive box. You could build a box and and put them in that. Um, You could uh, cover them with conductive cloth. Um, I did a test, gosh, I don't know, it must have been four or five years ago now, of about 25 different conductive cloths to see what what would work well for this kind of application and I came down to two and I ended up picking the one they both worked about the same and I picked the one that I like the best Um, and it's on the website we think they still sell it there Um, you can use it to to cover generators or cover cars or cover anything that's just big and and difficult to put into a Faraday cage and that conductive cloth is a is a nice solution because it's reusable. It doesn't get, you know, it doesn't get messed up. You can just put it over it and take it back off anytime you want, but it's pretty expensive. You know, to cover a generator might cost, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred $800 for the cloth. It's just expensive material um, and cars are even more. A car might be a few thousand dollars for a cover that would go over it. And, you know, so it's a real investment. You have to decide if it's worth that, that kind of cost. Um, the other thing that's a lower cost option is you can buy these transient reducing auxiliary plugs. Um, It's something I developed a couple years back. They're called TRAPS, T-R-A-P, transient reducing auxiliary plugs. And they're basically these little plugs that you plug into either a vehicle's um, auxiliary receptacle, which is the cigarette lighter plug, or you can plug some in. There's some AC ones that plug into a spare on an inverter or a generator. And all they are inside of them, I tell you, they're very simple. They just have a really fast, high power transient reducing component in them. And so, what happens is when you plug it into the power line, let's say of your inverter, you plug it into the output side of the inverter, um, when the voltage level, because an EMP has occurred, when the E1 pole starts to make those voltage levels go up, that transient device kicks on and shunts that energy away to ground very, very quickly, in picoseconds even. And, and it tries to prevent the voltage levels from rising too high and causing damage to the inverter or generator. Um, it's not foolproof by any stretch. Um, it's not to say that everything would absolutely survive if, it had, if you had one of those devices in. But it's the only device I know that is fast enough um, to try and suppress that energy. And so it's a low-cost investment, like 50 bucks or something. You can put one of those plugs in uh, one of the outlets. And at least that will try and clamp the maximum voltage that gets developed on those uh, energy lines. And so, those are the ways I know to protect those kind of things, is you either put it in a Faraday cage, you cover it with conductive cloth, or you use some of these transient reducing plugs to try and um, suppress the energy when it gets in. That's outstanding. That's
0: outstanding. So, it, that that's that's really great to know that that is because i have a handful of generators that kind of run the gamut from uh the small very basic baseline generator you know that that runs on um mixed gas all the way up to very high end power inverters uh you know one that i have from honda and um that that's great to know because that's that's definitely going to ramp up um my ability to protect that equipment as well now the question at this point is probably on everybody's mind. So we've talked about power generation uh we talked about protecting things inside the home we've talked about protecting small electronic devices communications uh, protecting all of that what about vehicles because this is the one we we you know we all Saw Jericho, the TV show uh, back in the, the mid 2000s was one of my favorite shows, um, even though it was it could be kind of campy at times. One of the neat uh, things that was a perennial plot device of that show and woke a lot of people up to the threat of EMP, myself included, was the fact that the only surviving vehicles that they had after the nuclear blasts and a lot of different areas were um pre uh, uh electronic fuel ignition vehicles or electronic fuel injection rather and uh trucks that were in the local mine that were you know buried deep underground and they were able to get them back out and of course in uh, uh dr fortune's novel uh, one second after, you know, they they were driving around a, a Farmall 140 and a, you know, a Ford 3000. And, you know, these tractors that were uh, pre-electronics, everything was mechanical on them. And in this day and age, for most of the vehicles on the road, that's really not an option. And, uh, the, you know, the supply of all mechanical operation vehicles is really, really diminished. What protections should the average person out there take to protect their vehicle from an EMP threat?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And you're right. It It is one that comes up a lot when we talk about EMPs is uh, how do you protect your vehicle? Um, and there's a few things to know. The the first is that, um, well, like one second after I read that book, a very good book, um, but it doesn't really paint a complete accurate you know storytelling right which is fine it doesn't play a completely accurate picture it, in reality if an emp occurred many vehicles would still be operable um, what percentage who knows um, my guess is maybe between 70 percent or so something like that would still work so a lot of cars would still be functional they they might be upset by the emp they might have all kind of crazy things happen when the emp occurred and there would no doubt be accidents more accidents than we could ever imagine from people losing control of their vehicles but many vehicles if you shut them off and turn them back on they would start up and you could get them home assuming the roads were, were able to be done that um so but even then if you think about if there's a couple hundred million vehicles in the united states and just use my number maybe you know 30 percent of them all of a sudden are damaged in some way you know you're talking about a whole heck of a lot of vehicles right maybe 60 million vehicles at one instant in time all of a sudden are damaged and roadways would become completely impassable if you had something an event like that that occurred um and you certainly wouldn't want to be one of those people that you know that your vehicle wasn't functioning so i think the odds are that many cars would still survive i just want to put that out there but i don't know that for a fact nobody really knows because The only testing I'm aware of on vehicles was the EMP Commission's testing, and it was incomplete. Um, And so, and its conclusions, were that most cars actually were okay, but they didn't test them fully to failure. So, it's an incomplete test. So, I'm going to just stick with my number and say some would be damaged. Now, the question is, how do I prevent my, you know, even if it's only 30 percent, well, that's a whole lot of cars. How do I prevent mine from being one that's damaged? and you really have kind of similar options as you did with the generator the cars are obviously too big in most cases to put in a faraday cage there are some exceptions to that some people have built faraday structures there's tents and things you can you can buy that you can park in that would protect them Um, but most people opt for they either buy a very large conductive cover um, which i mentioned a minute ago and it's just like a car cover it's a big tarp that you just drape over the car um, when it's not being used and it, it almost certainly would, the car would survive because even though the cloth is not nearly as good as a good faraday cage it still drops down about 97 percent of the field and since cars aren't that susceptible anyway you, almost any car under it you could assume would survive so that's one option is to pony up some good money and and buy a cover the disadvantage of that is twofold though one is it's extremely expensive and the other is that hey but i might be driving you know i can't have my cover on when i'm driving so the only other option is to try and introduce some transient suppression into the vehicle's electronics and that's not trivial because every car is different Um, and so there's the way i came up with it is a three-step process you put one of the transient reducing auxiliary plugs in one or more of the cigarette lighter receptacles so if you got two or three cigarette lighter receptacles spread around a vehicle. If you got a big vehicle, get one for each one and put one of those in there. And then you put a different transient reducing auxiliary plug, the battery version, and you wire it across the battery. Um, And then the third thing you do is you put some high saturation ferrites on the main power wires that come off the battery and go over to the the main fuse area. And if you do those three things – Um, what you've done is you've greatly increased your chances that the vehicle would survive because you've got multiple points of protection that are kind of, you can kind of think about them as like clamps. They clamp the voltage anywhere around them um, from ever getting too high. And if you have a few points in the vehicle that are clamped like that, um, you can prevent, largely prevent the damage that might occur. Now, just like with the generator, it's not perfect. The energy could come in at such an angle that it caught some processor that was too far away from one of the transient protection devices and still be damaged. So it can still be possible to damage something, but you've just greatly increased your chances. Um, And the advantage of that multi-pronged effect, you know, where you have the traps and the, the ferrites, is that you can have it on all the time. It doesn't interfere with the vehicle. You never know they're even there. They don't draw any power. Um, and if you're driving around, you know that you're you've got some protection on the vehicle even when you're operating it. So, those are the methods I know to protect vehicles.
0: That's outstanding. Uh, there wouldn't be, or at least to your knowledge, that that would protect things in more complex vehicles like the transmission control module, the ignition module, uh, the you know the the computers. So to speak, that that are managing a lot of the stuff on board.
1: Yeah, that's your goal. Your goal is to try and protect those critical items like that. And usually where the energy, I mean, everybody thinks about, oh, these little, you know, there are actually hundreds of little processors on vehicles nowadays. And they think of, oh, that processor is just gonna go up in smoke when the MP occurs. But it doesn't really work like that. The way that it works is the energy couples into the wires. And then the wires bring the energy into the processors and zap out these sensitive junctions. And so, what you want to do is, you if you have these clamps around the vehicle, as the energy couples into the wire, it gets limited and and sunk away to the to the ground before it, it gets a high enough level that it damages those sensitive processors. That's the idea of it.
0: Right on. So, in, in my mind, and and you know. I kind of conceptualize all this similar to a near lightning strike. Uh, I've had a near lightning strike to a vehicle, uh, obviously to other electronic devices within the home. Uh, And if uh, you know, I I had a a lightning hit one time right beside my truck and it shut my truck off uh, temporarily. And because I drive a diesel, it, the diesel was, was still running. Because the ignition was still on, but everything else, all the electronics inside of the truck shut off, and I had to to uh, shut it off, crank it back up, and then it was fine. Is that a good comparison to an EMP? The the what we might experience? Let's say like if if we were on the road. Uh, I have to travel a lot when I'm teaching classes. I'm getting ready to head out to Texas for a week. Um, compare for us, if you will, if if it's a even a comparison at all to a near lightning strike as, as to an EMP?
1: Yeah, um, it, I mean, it, it's a comparison, and it's probably the best one you could get, um, but there's a couple ways it's different. So it is true a nearby lightning strike can cause those same kind of uh, EMP-type disturbances. The difference is that the the time of that pulse, the, the lightning pulse, is much wider in duration. So it might be tens of nanos, or sorry, tens of microseconds, um, which is, you know, tens of thousands of nanoseconds. So it's it's a lot longer than this, this initial EMP pulse. But it's also very, very powerful. There's a lot of energy that gets pushed around, but it's spread out over time. And so it doesn't couple as efficiently into shorter conductors, very small conductors. Um, so lightning can can couple into long cables like, you know, even the long cables in your car can couple that that lightning uh, electromagnetic pulse energy into it and cause some disruptions. But an EMP is so much faster, the E1 phase of it is so much faster that it can couple even into traces and wires that are only an inch or two long, um, whereas lightning wouldn't be very efficient in doing that. The The part I didn't mention was that there's really three phases of the EMP. There's an E1, which is that the one we've talked about, which is so fast and such a high level. And then there's that late one, which is that E3, which gets into the power lines and causes all kinds of problems. But there's also one in the middle as you transition between the two, the early and the late. And that is very similar to uh, a nearby lightning strike. It's actually probably less energy than a nearby lightning strike, but it's very similar in terms of its frequency spectrum. And so... So for true EMP protection, you have to think about all three of those. Um, but the good news is if you dealt with E1 and you dealt with E3 in whatever ways you chose to, you, you kind of by necessity have also protected yourself from that middle phase. Um, but, yeah, there's there's some comparisons, I would guess, is what I would say, between the two and, and yet some differences, too.
0: That's outstanding because people have asked me that question. And obviously I always defer to the experts, you know, you're, you're at the top of that list and you know, I just kind of break it down in, in more of an anecdotal way of, of saying, you know, this is my personal experience and I've experienced a uh, near lightning strike with uh, my radio equipment as well. Um, I burn up an LDG tuner, uh, on a Icom 7,200 from a near lightning strike, and sent it back to LDG. They sent me another one. I sent it to them, by the way, not to uh, get anything out of it. I just wanted to send it back to them so that the good people there, because they build uh, automatic antenna tuners for amateur radio, I sent it back to them so they just so they could examine the damage, and made it clear, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy another one. And they sent me an email said, "Don't worry about it." Sent another one out, and I had it within a week. Which was I, I thought was really amazing. It was great pretty company. cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And and so I've experienced near lightning strikes, and that's how I've conceptualized it to people in class when when I'm teaching uh, radio theory, antenna theory, and and I'll always have the EMP question come up. And so I'll say, well, you know, it's, uh, the only the only thing that I can compare that to. Without getting overly technical with what is normally a, a non-technical audience, is saying you know it, it's similar to a near lightning strike, but you breaking it down in that way is that was that's amazing. Uh, that that's amazing. Now, last question, because I am I am always fascinated to hear what brought people to. Preparedness. What brought people to uh, thinking outside of you know the normalization of the times, so to speak. And and with your website, with disasterprepare.com, you, you know your work is is really amazing. You you're you know you're a, a NASA scientist. You're a, a, a PhD and and just just an incredibly brilliant scientist in your own right. What brought you to preparedness what brought you to doing this what brought you to recognizing EMP is as the the threat that it is
1: yeah that's a good question um so my time i guess starts way back when i was a kid um my dad was a you know marine corps veteran um big into preparedness survival back then there wasn't really any preppers it was just survivalists and I remember being a kid, very young, maybe seven, eight years old, and, you know, we would, we would sit at the dinner table and talk about, talk about various threats in the world and what we would do and how we would, you know, what we would essentially try and do to survive it. And he had blast maps of all, there were books that they were sold, that had these big maps you could roll out and see where the likely targets of nuclear strikes would be. And so, we were, you know, we were, we were involved at a very young age thinking about the world not being as safe as most people like to believe. And, and that probably carried with me. You know, I was a Boy Scout and all that kind of stuff. Joined the Army. I was a paratrooper in the Army. And then, but, but I'll Airborne. be honest. I wasn't, yeah. And, uh, okay. you know, but I wasn't hardcore hardcore prepper or anything like that. I was just a guy who, you know, had the fundamentals and and understood the world a little bit. And and then, you know, 9-11 came along. And I by that time, I had a young family. And I was, you know, an engineer, doing pretty well in life. I thought, you know, I've been to college and everything. And I realized that I had kind of left that part behind a little bit and that we really weren't, I didn't know what was next. A lot of people, when you watch the, the twin towers collapsing, people didn't know, well, what, what's next? Is this the start of something that, you know, is going to really affect me or what's going on here? And, um, and I started thinking, yeah, you know, I need to be better prepared for my family. We need to be more ready. And so I read every book, you know, there was available on preparedness and and learned a lot of stuff. And and then I thought, well, I'll I'll put what I know together. And I wrote a book, handbook to practical disaster preparedness for the family. And it did really well. It became a bestseller. I don't know how many tens of thousands of copies are out there, but a lot of people bought it. and it was some of it was just timing it came out around the time that fukushima happened the the big earthquake off the coast of japan and you had the nuclear power plant get have all the problems and um so there was just a timing thing Uh, but anyway it became very popular and and i became sort of integral in the community of preparedness and 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 learned a lot of people met a lot of people and and so that was kind of my my being brought into the preparedness community and was writing that book and And then somewhere along the way, and I don't even remember exactly where, I started getting asked about EMPs. And my background is electronics, um, but I also have a pretty strong background in electromagnetics. I'm a certified uh, electromagnetics compatibility engineer, which there aren't too many of us around. And so I thought, well, I don't know enough about it, but I know I can learn about it and I can sort fact from fantasy here. And so I started, I learned what it was and the basics and did some history searches and so forth. And then I started uh, seeing all kinds of stuff on the web that didn't make sense. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start testing some things. I have access to lots of test equipment. And so I started testing things just as really an interest and started doing a little, some of my early videos are horrible, but they're, they're, they're genuine in what they are, which was an investigation. And so I started testing what shields well, what things protect well, what doesn't work, um, and I started posting those on YouTube. And like you said, pretty soon, you know, I think the channel has, I don't know, 28,000 followers or something. People like to see what kind of things I'm testing. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And I, I wrote a book on EMP preparedness as well. And it's just an early introductory primer. It just talks about the things we talked about today, which is what is it? What's the general things to do to protect yourself? Um, and And that's kind of how I ended up in this in this role. I go on a lot of podcasts and YouTube channels and try and, you know, set the record straight as best as I know it. I don't know everything for sure, um, but I try and set the record straight as best I can and answer questions and help people to understand the, the EMP threat, because I do think that it's it's one of those things that's worth knowing about. Um, it, I think the biggest danger to people would be if an EMP occurred and they didn't. They didn't even know what such a thing was. They didn't understand the the possibility of what that threat could do to them. Um, and so, just like any other, we all understand what a big winter storm could do. We all understand what a tsunami might do. But this is another kind of threat, and it's important to understand what its impacts would be and how you might prepare for it. So that's kind of my role right now in that community is to help people better understand it.
0: I think you're you're just knocking it out of the park. It, it, that's. Um, As far as you say, your first few videos were were horrible. I have to completely disagree. Um, You you, you know, when I found you and and soaking up all of that knowledge and uh, because real doesn't have to uh, overrepresent itself or or look flashy in any kind of way, it's the content. And, uh, you know, right, as I said in, in the opening, I think that you, you through your work are the foremost expert on EMP in the United States. Uh, you, you're certainly at the the forefront of, of actual research being done on it. Um, and, and I think that your quality of work, your, uh, your academic expertise in, in the area as well, everything that you bring to the table, knowledge that you've shared here in just an hour's time has really, uh, really knocked it out of the park. I'm grinning from ear to ear because I'm soaking every bit of this up. Um, and, you know, I, I'm going to be getting out there and, and doing all of this stuff with my generators and my trucks now too. Uh, because you know, it, it, this is, it's, it is casting light on a topic that requires it and cutting through the hyperbole. And, uh, seriously, I can't thank you enough Thank you so much for spending an hour with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was really a great interview. I appreciate it.
0: Yes, sir. God bless you. Uh, God bless you and your family. And uh, for everybody out there, thank you for being with us, talking EMP, breaking down the threat here with Dr. Arthur Bradley. Folks, stay sane. Keep your head on a swivel. We'll talk to you again very soon very soon. This is NC Scout out.